Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi there. My name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the mobile sphere podcast where tech meets pop culture. Today's episode is on Lennart Ruff's The Titan. Joining me on the show today is Mobile Sierra Managing Editor Patrick O'Rourke. Patrick, this is your third time on the show. You are the first viewer experience Mr. Threepeat. How are you feeling today? I'm good, and I would also like to mention that is both an honor and a privilege. Glad to hear it. Later on the show, in our second and final segment, we'll hear from Dr. Sanjeev Goyal, a medical doctor and the lead physician at Wise Elephant Family Health Team. Dr. Goyal will lend some insight into the subject of biohacking. But first... Patrick and I are going to speak a little bit about the Titan in a segment I like to call, Why Wouldn't You Just Send the Titan to Mars? Here are some credits. The Titan was directed by Leonard Ruff. The film's screenplay was written by Max Hurwitz, based on a story by Arash Amel. Music was by Phil Eisler, cinematography by Jan Marcelo Call, and the whole film was edited together by Anne Carolyn Biesenbach. The Titan tells the story of an Earth on the precipice of environmental and political destruction. After moving to a military base, Rick Jansen, an Air Force pilot played by Sam Worthington, undergoes a dangerous experimental surgery with the ultimate goal of creating a superhuman who can survive on the surface of Titan, Saturn's largest moon. The film co-stars Taylor Schilling, Tom Wilkinson, and Natalie Emanuel. Patrick, I want to start off by asking a simple question. Did you like the Titan? I didn't, and I mean, when I first started watching it, I sent you a message like, hey, this movie doesn't seem so bad, what are you talking about? Because I think I like the inherent concept of the film. I like the idea of scientists augmenting someone in order for them to be able to handle a different planet's atmosphere and conditions, right? I think that's a cool idea, but just across the board, uh, the Titan squandered that opportunity of having this sort of nugget of an interesting, fascinating concept that it just didn't do what I expected it to with that idea um, and just squandered it. So this is the second Netflix film that we are talking about on viewer experience. And this is the second time where you and I are sort of faced with a situation where we're thinking it's an interesting idea. You know, the subject matter is certainly fascinating to think about, but the execution is weak. You just mentioned this is the second Netflix. I I would even go so far as to say this is the second Netflix B-movie sci-fi thing that we're, we're watching. I thought it was fine for what it was. I thought Sam Worthington's performance was okay. Uh, I mean, when he turns into the, the the Zora from The Legend of Zelda, things get a little little strange in terms of his his acting. But generally, like I, I thought the acting was probably one of the film's stronger points. I didn't really take too many issues with it. Just in case anyone's wondering what Patrick meant by the Zora from Ocarina of Time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so like the whole point of this movie is that these various scientists, engineers, soldiers from around the world, from NATO ally countries, they come to this NATO military base 
and they undergo, like I said, this experimental surgery. And at first, you don't really know what the surgery entails because we're told and uh, the characters are told that it's going to turn them into superhumans. But as Patrick alluded to, um, what ultimately ends up happening is that they lose all of their hair, they shed their human skin, and it's replaced by this like translucent yeah. uh, thing. This like slippery, I guess it's, it's designed to make he, them. He literally starts shedding, like he's losing his skin at one point. And this is the thing that really kind of confusing me about the film and we're, we were talking about this before recording did he really know what he was getting himself into there's this scene where one of the scientists working on the project is injecting him with what looks like a scary vial full of chemicals it looks like blue kool-aid i'm sorry it looks like a vial of blue kool-aid sure it does okay it's a scary vial of blue kool-aid and his wife questions like what is in this she's she's a doctor as well of some sort they don't really explain uh no they do she's oh, a pediatrician okay. she's yeah. a pediatrician yeah. okay. which we have to talk about and we will we have to talk about this movie's treatment of its women characters yes because that's that's also egregious yes um so yeah, she she questioned what was being injected into her husband's body, and and they were like, oh, it's it's just vitamins, it's all good, don't worry about it, and and he and he's just sitting there like. So that was one of the things that confused me was is he fully aware of what he's participating in? Did he know that he was going to turn into essentially this uh, superhuman monster, or did he and his family genuinely think that he was just being augmented to become? A, a superhuman like his physical appearance wouldn't change he would maybe be stronger maybe be able to run faster that sort of thing and i don't know and i could be wrong about this i don't think the movie ever explicitly tells us whether uh, his family is aware of it or even if he's aware of that so we're going to be jumping around a little bit in this conversation because uh, really the the ultimate bullet point is that patrick and i both didn't really enjoy the titan um at all so on the subject of whether or not uh, the audience and also the main characters knew about this experimentation so early on in the movie there's a scene where a scientist has this booklet and he's saying that this booklet pretty much says that this experiment that all these characters that all of these people are going to undergo is pretty much going to mutate them horribly but no one really believes him because the whole point is that earth is environmentally degraded and as a result of numerous wars i'm assuming some of the nuclear most of the world is uninhabitable but also of course the environmental degradation plays into that water and food are, are super rare too i think they they mentioned that at water and food are super scarce exactly so ultimately they're all doing this as a last ditch effort which is sort of why sam worthington he he makes a point of saying like this is it he's got no other options this is for his family this is for his children so whether or not he knew about it doesn't really like play into the overall narrative very much because of course uh, he goes through with these experiments regardless i said that we're going to be jumping around a little bit i think one of the things that I didn't like very much about this movie is that issue of the Frankenstein's monster that comes up. So for most of this movie, for the first two acts, it's a movie about biohacking, it's a movie about genetic engineering, and it's a movie that's sort of about space travel. But in that third act, after we see Sam Worthington become a Zora, and I'm actually, I'm not going to say a Zora. Zora. <laughs> I'm not going to say a Zora because a better approximation is that the Titans sort of resemble the engineers from Prometheus. They're tall, they're blue-skinned, they have no hair, and they seem very, they seem almost slippery, if I gotta be honest. So when we see Sam Worthington finally become the Titan, it becomes this Frankenstein's monster story without any of the social commentary, without any of the political commentary, and really without any of the scientific commentary. Because we see him become uh, the Zora slash engineer slash big blue thing, 
And then all of a sudden, it becomes quite clear that they just need to send him away to Titan. They need to send him to Saturn's largest moon and get him off base. Because the mission at that point is is almost null and void. And there's this weird relationship he has with one of the other Titans that they don't really explain. What would you describe the like um, little tendrils that come out of their hands of the Titans? We're told in the movie that they that the Titans are unable to communicate using traditional frequencies that that human ears can hear that they communicate in almost like a low frequency hum that we can't hear but that they do communicate through tactile movement and so what we see is that these titans they they get like these little tentacle just like patrick said these tendril tentacle things out of their like forearms that connect to the hands and, and bodies of the other titans and also to humans but i don't it's again the movie doesn't really explain it because suddenly they start using these tendrils yeah. as weapons and they start stabbing people with them right and and it just comes out of nowhere because the way the film sets it up is that these are to my understanding at least they're used for communication and then all of a sudden they become weapons and all of a sudden they become weapons and all of a sudden this movie goes from being the scientific exploration film to being this oh no what uh, what tragedy has man once again wrought which there's an argument to be made that all movies like this, all movies about genetic modification, biohacking, what have you, ultimately do become these treatises, these commentaries on the uh, on the length that science goes to to prove a point. But I think in this film, for me, it's so ham-fisted. There's so little setup for this third act reveal that it really does feel like it comes out of nowhere. It's very abrupt. It's like two different movies for me. Exactly. That's exactly it. It does feel like two different movies. The first two thirds feel like one movie and the last third feels like this completely different film. And not only that, on the subject of some of the things that we were critical of, um, so the acting is is so-so, I would say. I, I just think it's fine. Like, it's not exceptional in any way. It's like, whatever. This is a science fiction movie. I understand the motivations of the characters. Like, it's okay. It's fine. But the characters that these actors are portraying go through so many different emotional changes. For instance, Patrick brought up the doctor who injects Sam Worthington's character, Rick Jansen, with the vial of evil blue Kool-Aid. And at first, it's sort of played as she's this well-meaning doctor. She's participating in this experiment because she believes that this is humanity's last hope. Then the tone of the film changes, and it turns out that everything that we thought we knew about the military base is not true. It turns out that they're sort of operating extrajudicially. They're operating with very, very minimal oversight. And then the same doctor becomes evil. I'm just going to say, she becomes evil. She starts hiding things. She starts concealing information. But then she becomes good again towards the end, right? Sort of, maybe, can't really tell. (laughs) And not only does she become sort of, maybe, can't really tell good in the end, she also becomes one of the characters who Sam Worthington's wife, played by Taylor Schilling, relies on. So... It's it's very strange. The climax of the film is when the military asks uh, Rick Jansen's wife to inject him with a different vial of something or other. Is it red? Is it blue? Is it yellow? It's red Kool Aid. It's red Kool Aid. It's, it's so it's you know it's you know what we're gonna say it's red Gatorade. Oh Gatorade. Okay. It's, yeah. So the, there's a brand opportunity here that I think the film missed. You know what I mean? Like it could have been sponsored by Gatorade and Kool Aid. So she's asked to inject a vial of red Gatorade because that's going to not nullify any of the transformation 
transformations that have taken place, but it's going to put Rick Jansen in the sleep so that they can put him on a ship and send him to Titan. She doesn't do that, of course. She injects him with a vial of saline. But then she turns around, grabs the arm of this doctor who has gone through these numerous character changes and says, we got to go. Believe me, just trust me. We got to go. And all of a sudden, we as the audience are told that we have to trust this doctor again. When I saw that scene, I felt like something was left on the cutting room floor. Like there was probably scenes that developed that doctor character a little bit more so that she was more of less of just a prop and and a plot device and was more of a fully realized character then for whatever reason probably for length because they're like man we got to get through this not very great movie we got to keep people's attention i think it was cut out at some point because there seems like something was missing with that particular character there's more to her more to her motivations more to her character arc which as you were just saying didn't really makes sense in the context of the broader film. I'm glad you brought up the subject of prop, this subject of just being a plot device, because that sort of is how a lot of the women in this uh, in this movie are. So there's, I think, about maybe four major women characters. There is Taylor Schilling. That is the actress, not the name of the character. She plays Rick Jansen's wife. She plays the, the wife to Sam Worthington's character. And she is pretty much entirely defined by her relationship to Rick Jansen. She's a pediatrician by education and by practice. And her whole point in the movie is to say, yes, you can inject him with this vial of whatever uh, popular sports beverage is on hand or no. It hydrates him. It hydrates him. Well, well, you know what? It's funny you bring that up because that, that's true. One of the side effects of this experiment, or I guess one of the intended results of this experiment, is that they can hold their breath underwater for an extended amount of time. And they can swim really well. He was doing some crazy butterfly kick for a long time. They swim exceptionally well. So you know what? I'm going to say, Patrick, you're right. It's a Zora, not an engineer. It's definitely a Zora. Again, so she's pretty much just positioned as the wife to Rick Jansen and also the mother to their child. There's the doctor who goes through numerous character changes. I honestly cannot remember her name. She's pretty much just there to administer injections and to go along with whatever Tom Wilkinson's character and Tom Wilkinson plays the the evil baddie. He's the evil scientist who cannot be stopped and he has complete control over the experiment. There's a character played by Natalie Emanuel. She's given a little bit more characterization. She is either an engineer or a scientist or a military officer who also participates in the uh, in the experimentation. Ultimately, her story ends by her killing her husband. We'd seen previously that the whole point of their relationship is that the husband wants a family. She doesn't want a family, so she's career-minded. Heaven forbid a woman in a movie or TV show ever want to do anything else other than raise a family. She ends up killing her husband, and then she gets gunned down. It's a random act of brutal violence that we we see, we witness the military shoot her down. Why does she kill her husband? We don't really know. Then there is the wife of one of the other um, experiment subjects. One of the oh, subjects. I remember that. She has like no screen time. It's super, super, super short. Incredibly, incredibly little screen time. And her whole point is to say, I'm a little concerned about these experiments. And she's the victim of two acts of brutal violence. In one scene, we see her husband hit her because it's a side effect of the experiment violent tendencies that scene concludes when two other test subjects then hold the husband down and say hey what are you doing this is inappropriate what you're doing that character arc concludes with her dying she gets thrown out a window by her husband who then also gets gunned down so this film's 
portrayal of its women characters not very good, which you'd think that that would be a strange thing for me to cling to because, of course, the rest of the movie isn't very good. But it, it does really sort of feel like the movie doesn't like the women in its orbit, which is incredibly problematic, of course. Did they ever explain why the, the side effects of the actual surgery and whatever they're injecting them makes the, the, the violent tendencies come out? Is Not that something really. they addressed? They never. No, it didn't. It didn't seem okay. to be something that they uh, that they brought up. So ultimately, we discover that they're that the test subjects are being injected with a variety of different animal DNA. There's bat DNA. There's some sort of frog DNA. There's fish DNA, of course. Why would any of this make them violent? Not really quite sure. It's sort of just something that is swept under the rug. The movie just expects us to assume that whenever you inject a human being with animal DNA, they will become more animalistic. The other thing, too, that I was was curious about is how is this um, experiment? I know it's a last-ditch effort for humanity. How is it considered a success? Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A -a one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Success with all of the subjects in the experiment died and were brutally, like, gunned down in most cases, right? There's only um, Sam Worthington's character that made it out. How is he the future of humanity if he's just one dude on a moon, a moon of Saturn, right? That's never really addressed by the movie. Like, I know that he's been augmented to, I guess, handle the planet's harsher conditions, uh, abundance of water, the atmosphere, whatever. Does he just reproduce on his own? Like, what is the master plan here other than creating a life form that's able to withstand the harsh conditions of Titan? I think ultimately the goal is that once the primary experiment succeeds they use the results of that experiment to do more to do more on the remaining population on earth and then they would send all of those people to colonize to the to the water temple Uh, to the water temple yes they would get the the zora armor and of course then they would uh, fly away to the moon i hope they simplify the water temple though because it's far too hard and i don't want them to get lost in it because that that's a difficult temple in ocarina of time that was just a casual video game reference there to um, to just really tie it all together. The five people that'll get it. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about a different entertainment platform. Talk about Netflix and maybe just spend a few minutes talking about what's going on with Netflix and its B sci-fi movies. Now, I'm a fan of sci-fi movies, of B movies that, you know are not very good, that present themselves to be not very good. And I think in the case of something like The Titan, I'm not, of course, going to speak for Netflix and say that they've positioned The Titan as a weak film. But I think that a lot of the enjoyment from something like this property comes from watching it with a group of friends on a Friday night, on a Saturday night with, you know, with a pizza and just heckling it effectively. But that's really not a marketable option for a big studio. I don't think any studio really wants to be known as that one group of people that keep on investing in garbage films. So what do you think is going on with Netflix? I think that they have some kind of data that shows that sci-fi movies do well on Netflix. Like it's something that resonates with their audience. Um, So they're picking up as many sci-fi films as possible. I don't think they're going into this necessarily thinking that this stuff is going to be considered a B-movie. Like Two examples, I think, Netflix obviously positioned to be high, big-budget, prestige television. I'd say Altered Carbon and 
probably lost in space to to a lesser extent you can see the amount of money on screen and i don't know if those are like commissioned by netflix projects or ones that a production company came to netflix with and was like do you want to buy this but you can see the money on screen like they're expensive they're trying to shoot for that prestige television mark and i think in both cases like i I enjoyed them both but i think in both cases they missed that goal of creating like super high-end tv so i don't think netflix is necessarily setting out to get every crappy b-movie sci-fi film out there i think it's just how how it's working out for them right now maybe they need to be a little more selective with the sci-fi they're picking up perhaps that's the solution but there's definitely data out there somewhere because netflix runs on algorithms that says like hey our viewers like this stuff let's get more of it I think I agree with you entirely. One of the things that I think is also worth mentioning is that the Titan, while, of course, is separate from The Martian, the Ridley Scott movie released in 2016, it does bear notable similarities, sort of, if you squint to the plot of The Martian. So, of course, first of all, the Titan is named after one of the moons of Saturn, the largest moon of Saturn. But the Titan also refers to Sam Worthington's character and his fellow experiment subjects. They are, by definition, Titans. Uh, So, of course, there's that similarity between the title. There's the Titan and then there's The Martian. The Martian is a film about space exploration. It's a film about one character stuck on Mars and trying to come back home. The Titan is about a home that is uninviting that is unwelcoming that we have ravaged and is now is now no longer inhabitable really so of course it's a space exploration film in that sense and that sort of is it for the similarities between the martian and the titan i'm sure again again if you squinted you could find some more similarities between the two films but i think what netflix has sort of done is and as you mentioned netflix of course runs on algorithms i think the titan is a movie that will pop up in a search for the martian whether the martian is available in oh, your particular region so i believe that right now The Martian is available in Netflix Canada. I'm not sure if it's available in Netflix UK. I'm not sure if it's available in Netflix, for example, Hong Kong. But if I were to search for The Martian in a region where it's not available, the Titan will pop up and then I'll I'll think to myself, well, they seem relatively similar. Why not click on it? So it's like you watch The Martian, what to watch next, The Titan. Okay. Exactly. I see that. I see that. Maybe, Maybe that's literally why they picked it up was to fill that little space in the algorithm. That would be hilarious. But also at the same time, there is an argument to be made about the positives that are resulting from these weird sci-fi B-movies that Netflix seems to be investing in. Uh, The Cloverfield Paradox is not a good movie. It is a B-movie. It's it's schlock, I would say. Netflix is sort of positioning itself then as this company that takes on these sci-fi movies. And I said earlier that that might not be a very good business model, but if we think about it from an artistic perspective, imagine if you're a writer, director, an actor, and you want to create, produce, write, what have you in these sci-fi films and sci-fi is your dream. Well, you can't really go to Marvel because, of course, Marvel is putting out its own properties. You can't go to Lucasfilm or Disney because, of course, Star Wars is the number one thing there. You could maybe go to Warner Brothers for for a pitch, but the DC Extended Universe or Cinematic Universe is taking place there. So in a market economy, in a film economy, where these big studios sort of have their own tentpole films, they have their own franchises, if you want to be someone who pitches an original sci-fi property, an original science thriller biohacking, cool physics thing, Netflix really might be your only option. And will Netflix necessarily pump out a good film, a good TV property? Maybe not, but at least it's an opportunity for you as an artist to pitch your work. Like, if you think about it, where else could this film have ended up, right? Like, it's... I I do not see something like this getting a theatrical release, at least a wide theatrical release. 
I don't think that a television station is going to want to shell out the cash to pick it up because they don't have the money. Like you said, big studios already have their own tentpole sci-fi projects. Like who would actually take this? Only Netflix. And I guess in that sense, it's cool that directors and creators that want to work in the sci-fi space have this outlet to work from. So yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. And on the subject of hacking together a science fiction film, that sort of, but not really, leads us into our next segment that I like to call Biohacking Our Way to a New Tomorrow. Patrick, as you know, and as we've discussed, The Titan is a film in which biohacking, or in the case of the film's terminology, forced evolution, is central to the plot. We see characters get injected with a variety of different DNA combinations. We've been calling them Kool-Aid and Gatorade. But these DNA combinations all lead to the widespread rewriting of the main character's very human essence. Now, as you can imagine, that's not really how biohacking works in the real world, at least not yet. And I know, you're shocked, I know. But I spoke with... Sanjeev Boyle, and my title, I'm a physician at Wise Elephant Family Health Team and Spark Medicine. Who offered some insight into what biohacking is really all about. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question and one that different people will give you different answers for because there's really no accepted definition for it and it, it seems to be changing as well over time. My understanding is biohacking is the practice of experimenting on your body, that's I guess where hacking is coming from, using the latest in technology and understanding of health and, and culture. I think that's not always about, uh, you know, some crazy implant or something being put into your body. The concept is about using new technologies, like I was saying, to understand our body better. So an example might be, for example, ketogenics. This sits still outside the mainstream of medicine. And so what what people are understanding now is that they have the power to go ahead and start making some of these, I guess, experiments or changes with how they interact with the environment and then watching how that happens, what effects happen on their body. So you'll see people who are involved in the keto movement is that they are on their own or, you know, learning on the internet or talking with others about, you know, how can they vary their diet? Uh, you know, how what's the optimum length of macros? Um, how long should they be fasting? What supplements should be taking if they're on a ketogenic diet? How should they be testing their uh, keto levels? I mean, this is all outside what you could do when you, if you have to go to a physician. So this whole space of understanding the body is really happening outside of traditional medicine. And that's an example, I guess, for keto, for neurohacking. Uh, you know, there's so many devices out there which allow people to start to understand their brain waves. And then once you understand that, then you can potentially do training of your brain waves and, and improve symptoms like focus and, and mood issues and uh, attention deficit disorders, things like that. So Patrick, I want to ask you, when you hear the term biohacking, what do you think of? So me instantly, I think of uh, replacing your bones with metal, maybe putting some microchips under the skin, maybe smart contact lenses or something like that that are embedded into your eye. I think of like wires and, and just tech in the general sense. So I asked Dr. Goyle precisely that question, and he spoke a little bit about the stigma associated with the term hacking and how that plays into the perception of biohacking. You know, we've heard that term, I think, first in the technology sphere where hackers have broken into systems. But the idea of experimenting on ourselves is really, uh, is now only possible because of the new technology which has come, which has made it possible for people to now understand their own body. So I think 
Perhaps hacking kind of gives a negative connotation, but it's really about having awareness of and understanding of the body and then taking actions to change the body. Patrick, are you skeptical of biohacking? I think a lot of what Dr. Goyle says is stuff that never occurred to me would be considered biohacking, like taking specific types of vitamins that help you perform better just even at your everyday job. It kind of opened up the concept of what the term biohacking really means. Because like I said before, when I was explaining my sort of perception of it, it's very close, right? Um, and I think that what he's saying, I don't think the average person is going to consider that biohacking, but it's definitely fascinating to consider that the the concept is much wider um, than maybe the average person thinks. And of course, here's what Dr. Goyle had to say about what the average person thinks about when it comes to biohacking, some of the skepticism or, or lack of skepticism that they may express. The vast majority of people like this is completely new to them, so they probably just don't understand. But people do understand things like trying out ketogenic or different types of supplements and things like that. I think people understand that because they're hungering for those types of options. They're waiting, looking for somebody to provide advice in this place where there's really information overload out there and it's looking for some guidance. So you see a lot of people on the internet uh, who are promoting various types of things that one can do to enhance their health and longevity. So they're always looking for experts who can be trusted. Dr. Goyle also addressed the dangers associated with biohacking, mostly saying... Yeah, no, there's dangers. There's, there's for sure there's dangers, I think, because a lot some of these things are just not researched enough and we don't have like guidelines so much on what can be done and what shouldn't be done. That is not something that I have an answer for. I and mean, my goal is obviously, yeah, let's have the experts in the field talk about it and educate people, but uh, everyone is open to get that education. So I'm all about... Let's bring science here. Let's not, it shouldn't be all uh, just what I guess voodoo medicine or whatever. Like it's about, let's find out from what's on, what researchers are actually studying and let's bring it to the mainstream. The Titan sort of plays into a lot of the stereotypes associated with biohacking. And here's what Dr. Goyle thinks pop culture typically gets wrong when it comes to the subject. I think that they sensationalize it a little bit with this idea that it's experimenting and it's on the fringe and it's like taking particular uh, chemicals or, or changing your DNA. I think those things are not really, we're not really there. What we're talking about in biohacking are much simpler things at this moment. Nobody's out there cooking up their own DNA or mixing it with the pig at this time, but it's more about perhaps people are wearing a Fitbit and they want to understand their sleep wave cycle and they want to figure out, okay, if they eat a certain food, does that change their sleep? And that's the type of stuff that biohacking is right now. And perhaps in pop culture, it's a bit more out there. Dr. Goyle is also one of the organizers behind the Spark Biohacker Summit in Toronto. The Biohacker Summit is first of its kind in North America. We partnered with the Biohacker Summit in Europe. They've been doing the summit there for a few years already. And the focus is to bring in experts, researchers, physicians, who are on the cutting edge of these areas of, of the movement. So neurohacking and science of longevity, science behind medical cannabis and psychedelics, understanding of human microbiome, circadian rhythms and how they impact your health. I mean, so these are real science that's happening in, in various universities around the world. And so we're just trying to bring in some of the big speakers to allow the mainstream person to really jump ahead and understand uh, what the cutting edge of science is at. So Patrick, what do you think? Do you think we're going to get to the point where we're injecting ourselves with bat DNA to grow wings? I'm just imagining uh, Samir flying around the office as a bat now. I think that if something like that happens, it's hundreds of years away. I don't think anyone's going to be comfortable with injecting the DNA of another animal. I think if biohacking becomes a thing, 
we're going to see stuff that's a little less intrusive. Like we see reports of smart contact lenses all the time. I know I mentioned that before, but I think that's something that's a little more feasible in the foreseeable future. I don't think we're going to have phones embedded into our heads or anything like that. It's going to be stuff that's not that intrusive. This is what Dr. Goyle had to say on the subject of the future of biohacking. Yeah, we're not there yet. I mean, I can't speak for 20 years from now, but um, you know, I do think that those type of technologies will be in people's hands, but they're not there now. So uh, right now it's about letting people understand that there's a lot of information we can now gather about our bodies and that information allows us to change our behavior uh, about how we interact with the environment and that will have implications on our health. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Before we go, we'd like to remind you that Mobile Syrup's flagship podcast, The Syrupcast, is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, and pretty much every other podcasting app out there. Patrick, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Patrick underscore O'Rourke and also on MobileSyrup.com. You can find me at SamirChaber94 on Twitter and, of course, at MobileSyrup.com. You can find Mobile Syrup at MobileSyrup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. Science is real from anatomy to geology. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico, to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.